Super. Good morning. What a great morning. What a good morning to be with, uh, with your faith family, worshiping, and I know it's cold and, and a little bit hard to get here, but uh, we're getting used to that, and uh, glad to have you here this morning. I know that you'll leave encouraged. I want to uh, give you one more piece of uh, encouragement, that uh, last week, if you were here, we reported that uh, our reverberate offering, that, that the people of Trinity had given uh, $17,500 to our reverberate offering to, to give away uh, this year. And uh, I challenged you, it was actually 17501 and I said, if someone wants to give $499, we'll make it 18000 And actually, two people gave $500, which gives us $18,501. How about that? <laughs> so if someone wants to give $499, <laughs> hey, that's beautiful. $6,000, three different directions. I mean, yeah, right on. That's exciting, and uh, we're going to be filling you in on what happens to that, and you'll be part of that. We'll, we'll keep you posted really closely on that. But just great job, fabulous generosity. Now, one thing I want to say is that uh, uh, we still have opportunity for uh, uh, people to do an imagination proposal. That's one-third of where these, these funds are going to go. One-third is going to go to a proposal that comes from within this faith family. And I hear a lot of, I hear, I smell a lot of smoke, but we haven't seen any fires yet. So I hear people talking about their idea, but no one actually is brave enough to turn theirs in yet. So here's what I want to say. You've got about two weeks to fill out your imagination proposal. You've got a, a little handout with... Uh, with some guidelines on the back that will give you some guidance on how to submit a proposal. Then we have a, an, a blank proposal. We actually even have a sample proposal somewhere on a yellow sheet. Maybe we could get out a couple of those. But that uh, you'll fill out this proposal and you'll turn it in. A panel of people have been uh, tapped at Trinity, kind of a, a, a panel of your peers to evaluate these different proposals. And uh, here's what I want to say. No idea is a bad idea, all right? So if you're like, oh, I got an idea, but I just, don't, I just don't know. No idea is a bad idea. Put it down and submit it. Number two, even if your idea is kind of bite-sized, you're like, well, I don't know what I'd do with $6,000. I know what I'd do with $2,000, but I don't know what I'd do with six. Submit a bite-sized proposal if that's what you have. Go ahead and do that. Uh, no idea is a bad idea. And even if you have a bite-sized proposal, I mean, what this panel may do is they may see three smaller, medium-sized kinds of things that they like better than, uh, than something else. So don't hesitate. Grab these. These forms are available around the building. Pick those up. You've got until the end of January to do that, all right? So now you kind of know what you have to work with, and it'll be exciting to see uh, what you come up with. I'm really excited about that. Well, I'm also excited today about the new study that we're beginning. Here's what I want to say about it at the very beginning. We're going to be taking the next eight weeks to talk about something called God's Church, Your Family. Every Sunday is going to be important. Sometimes you just can't be here, you're sick, you're out of town. I want to encourage you to find online, by Monday online, the message from Sunday is always posted. I want you to make sure that you listen to every one of these messages, that you participate in every one of these eight Sundays, because every Sunday is going to matter. And here's why I think it's important. I believe that this, this study, this conversation as a faith family is going to have a, the potential, it's going to have the potential. 
potential to transform our church. That's how I've been praying, that, that, that this conversation was going to have a transforming effect on you and a transforming effect on our church. And the subject of this study has to do with something that happened to you when you became a Christian. Something that happened to you when you were saved, when you put your faith in Jesus as the forgiver of your sins, the leader of your life. When you looked to Jesus as the one God sent, a number of different spiritual transactions took place in that moment. God performed a number of different kinds of works in you at the moment that you trusted Jesus. One theologian has counted uh, about 33 different things. 33 different kinds of spiritual transactions that took place in you when you trusted Jesus as the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life. Things like forgiveness of sins, that you were forgiven all of your sins, and that transaction took place. You were redeemed. You were bought with a price. You were justified. You were declared legally blameless in God's eyes. Justified. You were uh, reconciled. That's something else that took place. Uh, You were brought into a repaired relationship with God and reconciled. Uh, 33 different things that God did in your life when you were saved. And they became immediately true of you in that moment. For the next couple of weeks, next eight weeks, we're going to be talking about one of those and its ramifications on us. Uh, one of those 33 things. It's actually not exactly one of the 33. It's kind of a combination of a couple of these 33 different things. Uh, but it became true of you at the moment you trusted Jesus. At the moment you trusted Jesus, you were uh, redeemed. You were reconciled. You were justified. And you also, in that moment, got familified. You got familified. You got put into a new family. A new family where God is your father in heaven. And then you have a whole bunch of new brothers and sisters in something called the church. Now this is taught throughout the New Testament. Jesus used the picture of a new birth. He said you must be born again. And when you're born again, you're born into a family where God is your father. So Jesus used the picture of being born again. Paul used the picture of being adopted. He says this. He uses this picture of adoption. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And so this new birth, being born again, being adopted into God's family, it has given you a new status. You are now a child of God. You're a child of God. Galatians, Paul again says this, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Sons of God. Now the new New International Version. We use the older, most of us have the older New International Version, and someday we're going to have to change. But the older New International Version, 1984 edition, uses the word sons. But the new New International Version, New International Version uh, 2011, or anything you find online, if you bought it since 2011 or online, you prob- your translation uses, instead of the word son, the word children. Part of the new New International Version is to uh, render certain words a little more gender sensitively. And in this case, it's sometimes helpful. And in this case, I think it is helpful because, because we are all children of God. We have all been made children of God, men and women. We've all been made children of God 
through faith in Christ Jesus. We have a new status, God's children. Romans 8, Paul goes into a little more detail. He says, therefore, brothers, interesting that he calls these Roman believers that he's never met brothers. We're going to find out how significant that is as we proceed over the next several weeks. New, New International Version says brothers and sisters, and that's okay too. All right, therefore, brothers and sisters, uh, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you die, but if you live by the Spirit, uh, you put to death the mid-seeds of the body and you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Sons, and you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So this new birth gives us a new Status. We are now children of God. And not only does it give us a new status as children of God, it gives us a whole set of new relationships. A whole set of new relationships with God's people, other children of God. Paul, again, in Ephesians says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's People. You've been made a fellow citizen with God's people and members of God's household. God has a household. He has a family network, and you're part of it. And not only are you part of it, but so are other Jesus followers. You have been made a part of God's family. You have been familified. You've been made of part of God's family, he is your father, and we are your brothers and sisters. Look around, look around for just a minute, look around, look around, that means turn your head, look around, you have brothers and sisters in this room, brothers and sisters, because you're a child of God, and these are all your siblings, sons and daughters of God. God's church is now your family. Okay, let's take a breath. Up to this point, you probably knew this. You probably knew this, or if, uh, you know, I probably haven't told you anything you didn't already either know or at least suspect. Probably something you at least suspected I was going to say. Uh, but here's, here's where I'm going to take what, what we maybe have had in common. Okay, brothers and sisters in Jesus. I want to take that into a realm you probably have not taken it before. You probably have known or at least have suspected everything I've said up to this point. But what I want to say next, you may never have thought about. You may never have really thought about how important it is that you have brothers and sisters in Jesus now. You may not have thought of how significant that is. See, the picture of the family is the dominant metaphor for the local church in the New Testament. Yes, the church is called the body of Christ. Yeah. 
Yes, the church is called the bride of Christ. Yes, the church is called the flock of God. But more than any other picture in the New Testament of the local church, more than any other description, the church is called a family. A family. In Paul's writings alone, he uses the words brothers, sister, father, either with a capital F, meaning God is your father, or father with a lowercase f, talking about spiritual fatherhood, people in the faith family who function as fathers. He uses the word brother, sister, or father of the local church over 200 times in the New Testament. He talks about us belonging to God's family. He talks about us being responsible for each other. He talks about us being brothers and sisters, being heirs, being children. The family is the dominant metaphor, the dominant picture of the church. And it's how we ought to think of the local church. By local church, I mean the church that shows up at a time, and a place that, that, that has a, a sense of belonging to each other that functions together. I'm talking about the local body, not just the generic church, all believers everywhere, but the local church. Here's where things get interesting. So we all accept, okay, so we're, we're part of the family, and the family is the dominant picture of the church in the New Testament. Okay, fine. But here's where things get really interesting. Family meant something different when Paul used that word, than it does today. See, when our 21st century American ears hear the word family, we think something different than people did in first century Palestine. When we hear brothers and sisters, we hear something different than our first century brothers and sisters heard when they heard that term. Now, I owe almost all my insights on this subject to a guy named Joe Hellerman. Joe Hellerman is a professor of New Testament at Biola University and Talbot Seminary, and he's written a book on this subject that I read several years ago, and I read it, and I thought, I can't wait to share this with the people of Trinity. This is something that we will grow from. The name of the, church, uh, the, name of the book is, is When the Church was a family. When the church was a family, it's a great book to read if you're interested in reading on your own, these kinds of things. When the church was a family, he, he, he has done a tremendous amount of cultural research and historic, uh, historical research. And what he does is he helps us understand how differently you and I hear the word family as 21st century Americans than people, the people that Paul was writing to when he said, your family. Here's, here's where uh, one of the most significant differences is. Uh, so stay with me here, all right? There is such a thing as a weak group society and a strong group society. All right? A weak group society, a, a, on the one hand, a weak group society, weak group culture, strong group culture. Now, hear me before I go too far. These are not one is better than the other. They're just different. And there are different ways that cultures and societies relate to each other. Some cultures relate to each other with weak group ties, and some cultures relate to each other with strong group ties. It's just the way it is. So, a weak group society values the individual, places emphasis on the individual. Individuals are important. Self-actualization 
is important. Being true to yourself, that's what life is all about. Finding yourself and your place in the world. Finding your purpose in life. That's what's called weak group, a weak group culture. It means, basically, that the individual is more important than the group, and it's important for you to do what you need to do, even if it means leaving your group behind. Even if it means moving away to pursue your dream. Marrying someone that your parents don't really approve of. Rebelling against the norms of the community that you were raised in. Because by golly, I gotta be me, you know? That is a weak group culture. Emphasis on the individual. On the other hand, you have a strong group culture. A strong group society. Strong group cultures, you can imagine, is kind of the opposite The emphasis is on the group. The emphasis is on the health of the whole unit, not just the health and self-actualization of a person in it. The emphasis is on the whole group. What's good for the group? What's good for the group is more important than what's good for the individual. Individual people make decisions based on the group norms, based on what is best for the group, based on the advice of the group based on what's good for everyone. Who you marry, what you do for a living, where you do that for a living, all of that is determined by what's best for the group that you're a part of, whether that's your community or your, your ethnic group or your family. You make decisions based on what's good for the whole group. Now, Not one's not necessarily better than the other. They're different, pros and cons to both of those. But based on that description, what kind of society do we live in in 21st century America? Is American culture weak group or strong group? Weak group, right? We are absolutely a weak group culture. That means that moving away to pursue your dream, marrying someone against your parents' wishes because you love them, uh, rebelling against the norms of the community you were raised in. In America, we hear those things. We're like, yeah, go for it. You know, we make movies about that. Pretty sure every dancing movie ever made is about that. So we're like, yeah, you know, that be true to yourself. Find, find your purpose in life and carry it, carry it out and don't let anybody hold you back, right? That's, that's America. It's not necessarily bad, but it's very different. It's very different from most of the rest of the world and most of the rest of history. Because most of the world today is not like that. Most of the rest of the world is strong group culture. China strong group. India, strong group. Basically, most, almost all of Asia, strong group. You make decisions based on what's best for your family, your community, your nation, not yourself. Most of the rest of uh, Africa, pretty much everywhere outside of North America and Europe, and probably throw in Australia, you probably have to do that, But outside of those pockets, the rest of the world is strong group culture. The group is more important than the individual. And without question, the culture in Bible days, including the time of the early church, 
was strong group. And the quintessential strong group in a strong group culture is the family. So, the most important strong group in a strong group society in Paul's day was the family. Family ties were everything. They were everything. They were much more important than they are to us today. Because even if you have a close family today, and I know you're thinking, well, I have a close family. Sure. Having a close family is not the same as having a strong group family. Even if you have a close family today, and we have close families in the United States, but we don't have strong group families. So when Paul said that you were made a member of God's family, when you turn to Jesus. When he says you were put in relationship with other brothers and sisters, he was saying something really big, bigger than we realize as 21st century Americans. He was saying that you and I have been put into the most important group you can imagine, God's strong group family. God's strong group family, which supersedes every other group that you are a part of. It's even more important than your biological family. Let that sink in for a minute. You have been put into a set of relationships within this new family that are more important than you. And these relationships are more important than your life dreams. They're more important than your self-actualization. That's what every first century believer heard when he heard that he'd been familified. It's just not what we hear today. We hear, brothers and sisters, that's awesome. And that's it. But Jesus intended the faith family, the church... The strong group that he called people to be part of, he intended that group to be the most important set of earthly relationships that his followers have. Jesus knew that following him would have to take priority over your, one's biological family. He knew that. And think of how hard that is in a strong group culture. Now, that's one of the things that makes our culture a little bit easier. If my mom and dad grow up as atheists or... Uh, as uh, members of a cult or whatever, and I'm saying, I don't want to be part of that. I'm gonna, I, I believe that Jesus is the one God sent. I can, I can do that. And everyone's like, yeah, you know. Uh, so, so in one sense, it's easier to make a choice to follow Jesus in a weak group culture. But in the strong group culture, that's where Jesus was calling people to follow him. He was calling people to hate their mother, hate their brother, hate their father, and follow him. What he meant by that was, listen, I'm calling you to a group that is even more important than the strong group that you are a part of. I am calling you to a new, even stronger group. And and think how hard that would be to follow Jesus in a culture where you're really supposed to do what everybody else does. In some cases, whole families made the decision to become Jesus' followers. You see that happen in the New Testament. But, but when there was just one individual, think of what that person left behind. And what Jesus intended for the person who left family behind was that uh, the church, this new strong group, would replace any relationships that you might have lost in that transition. The church was meant to take that place. 
One day, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, was thinking about all the things that he had left to follow Jesus. He was thinking about all the things his friends had left to follow Jesus. And he said to Jesus in Mark 10, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. See those words? In this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that when we follow him, we may lose some things. We may lose some things, we may lose some family, but we'll gain even more through our new family. We'll gain even more. We'll, we may lose some things, but we'll gain even more. We actually will exchange one family for another. We actually see this happen with one of Jesus' very first followers. When Jesus came to James and John, they were fishermen in their dad's business. And he came to James and John on the beach one day and he said, follow me. And Mark tells us, without delay, without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat. Okay, they left him in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, even in 21st century America, we can appreciate that uh, leaving your dad behind with the family business is no small thing. But in a strong group culture, what a huge thing. Jesus called them to follow him even above the ties that they had. But Jesus calling them, he was calling them to a group that was more important than their individual agenda, more important than their biological family, and which would in many ways replace what they left and many times over. In this present age, that's the church. Now by now, uh, you're probably pushing back at least a little bit on this. I understand this is a big culture shift for us. We are independent Americans. We are rugged individualists. But that doesn't mean we're right. It doesn't mean we have God's heart on this subject. Because when you turn to Jesus, you got familified. You got put into a new group that's more important than you are. It's more important than your self-actualization. It's actually raised to the level of family, and that new group is a significant part of your new life in Jesus. Now, the early church got this. The first few decades and even centuries after Jesus' ministry, the people of the way, they got this. They got it so well that their newfound faith in Jesus actually spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean area. And it spread not because of its truthfulness. It spread because of its powerful belongingness. That's why it spread. This new thing called the church, these local collections of Jesus followers that met together on a regular basis, uh, these local collections of Jesus followers, they were they were filled with people of multiple races, multiple cultures. They were filled, they had rich people and poor people in the same building. And, and they took care of each other like they were family members. They practiced a different ethic with each other. 
They, uh, they, they practiced a way of treating each other that was odd, looked strange to the, to the rest of society. They took care of each other. They cared lovingly for each other. They shared their money. They shared their resources. They shared their belongings. One church father says, we are brothers. We share everything but our wives. And that is what set Jesus' followers apart from their pagan, idol-worshiping, self-serving counterparts. It set the local church, Jesus' followers, apart from the rest of the culture. And it was a big contributor to the growth of the way, the Christian movement in the first three centuries. The church reached its culture not just through its truthfulness, but through It's demonstration of family love. And here's why all this matters. And here's why we need to understand this truth. And here's why the next several weeks are going to be so important. Because two important things hinge on getting this right. The first thing that hinges on getting this right is the fate of the world. Really, the world depends on it. The world depends on you and me, the people of Trinity, and every other local church that names the name of Jesus. The church, the world depends on you and me understanding and living out our familification in the context of a local faith family because that is our primary witness to the world. Jesus said, and we'll look at this in detail next week, this is how the world is going to know you're my disciples. By how you love one another. By one another, he didn't mean by how you love people. He means by how you love the people in this new strong group that I've called you to. This is how the world will know that you're my disciples. See, here's the thing. Anybody can love their blood family. That's wired into us. It is wired into you and into your brain to bond with the people that you grow up with. It's wired into us. But Jesus calls us to love more than just the people who we have grown up with in a family. He calls us to to something more than just love people who are like us. That's easy. What Jesus calls us to is in the church's ever-expanding circles of love and acceptance. You, You grow to accept these kinds of things in people, and then you grow to accept these kinds of things, and you grow to accept, read the New Testament, and you watch this ever-expanding circle of love and acceptance of different kinds of believers take place. And that's what makes a church special. That's what makes Trinity special. We have a community here of people of different backgrounds, all kinds of different levels of education in this room today, different personalities, Different social roles, different ages, loving each other like a family. And that, to the degree that we carry that out, that will be our witness to the world. Especially, especially in a world that has a hard time evaluating truth. I've never seen a time, I'm not that old, you know, but I mean... uh, When has there been a time where people have less of an idea of what is really true than today? So our culture is not very well equipped to discern truth, but our culture has a really 
strong understanding of belongingness. So, in a world that has a hard time evaluating truth but knows belongingness when it sees it, our family love for each other is going to be very compelling proof that God is at work among us. So the world depends on it. If they're going to become convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, one big reason will be because they see how we relate to each other. Second thing that depends on it, on you and me living this truth, is your sanctification. By that I mean your spiritual growth. The work that God wants to do in you to make you more and more like Jesus, to add Christ-likeness to you and remove sin from your life, is done in the context, that growth is going to be done in the context of a faith family, in a local church. That's how you're going to grow. As you love and are loved. As you serve and are served, as you contribute your gifts to build up the faith and life of other people, and they contribute their unique gifts to build you up, that's the context in which it occurs. And so you need to be part of a faith family, a local church, because your own growth depends on it. You have beautiful parts that need to be shared with other people. You have a Christ-likeness that other people need to learn from. And you have some rough spots that need to be polished off through loving relationships with other people. And you are not going to become the person that God wants you to become. And you're not going to connect with the works that God wants to perform through you if you hold the church and the people in it at an arm's length. If you treat the church like family... If you welcome people into your life and you are willing to get into their lives, then that's when God, that's what will give God room to do both his work in you and the work that he wants to do through you. And that's what we want to explore over these next several weeks. So think of, think of it just for a minute, what it would look like in this valley. If Trinity could model the way in this department, if we could model the way of relating to each other like family, not weak group ties where the minute, you know, the minute that my back isn't scratched the way I want it, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pursuing something else, but instead with strong group ties that are committed to each other through difficult times and easy times, if Trinity could model the way, and really if we could share everything but our wives and our husbands, what would that be like? I mean, How many churches have you seen like that? Then how many churches have you seen like that, especially our size? It's one thing for a church of 80 people where about 60% of them are related by blood anyway. It's one thing for that church to love each other like family. But a church of our size with the diversity that we have, how about that? What if we could grow in our love for each other and our sacrificial care for each other? What if we could, as as a faith family in this valley, exemplify Jesus' vision for his church to be like a family? A place of belonging and acceptance and relationship and commitment and sharing love. The same level of family that marked the early church. You know what? That would transform our church. But it wouldn't stay here. It would transform our valley. And it would spill over this valley into the world around us. That's where I want us to go. That's what I believe God wants to teach us. That's where I want to call you, my brothers and sisters, 
to a new place where we love each other as part of this new family where God is our Father and we are each other's brothers and sisters. I want to take a minute and pray for that. And I want to give you just a minute to pray for that. So would you take a minute, just as an individual, would you make that your prayer for a minute, that God would carry that work out in our faith family, that he would carry out in you? And then I'd like to, I'd like to join you in that prayer in just a minute. Father, the things that we've looked at this morning, boy, they're a, they're a vision that's bigger than, than, than uh, our first understanding. The work you want to do in us, this, this special entity called the church, which is also our family, it's a big deal. And it's bigger than our preconceived ideas. And this work that you want to do in us of transforming us into the image of Jesus... And this work you want to do in the world of drawing people to Jesus, it depends on us learning to love each other in the way that you've called us to. And my prayer for me, my prayer for my brothers and sisters here, my prayer for this family is that you would take us further in this direction, that our love would increase more and more for each other. And as a result, we would grow and people would come to Jesus. I pray that you'll do this work. It's way bigger than any one of us. Please, you lead the way, and we will follow you there. And we ask it through Jesus. Amen.